Well, hello there you gorgeous lot, and welcome to another episode of Fuds and Film. I'm Drew Tavendale, with me this evening Mr Scott Morris. That's me! Now, in this episode, we're going to be covering journalism, and journalists as portrayed in film. I could say that we picked this topic because it's timely, but really, when is this topic not timely? But in reality, it was picked simply because it seemed interesting to us. That said, it is timely in our current age of fake news. Not the fake news that dangerously incompetent narcissists decry when they are when the word they are looking for is in fact inconvenient, but the genuine fake news, the sort that helped said mendacious arse trumpet get elected, the kind of false news that at best misleads and at worst causes division, violence and harm to the vulnerable. Perhaps more worrying is the decline in the general standards of both writing and investigative journalism. It still exists, of course, though it seems much more difficult to come by. Fortunately, we can always turn to celluloid when we want to remember, or perhaps delude ourselves, that an individual journalist or an organisation can make a genuine difference to a person's life, an industry or a country, as cinema has a long-standing love of the profession and those around it. From the corrupted by power Charles Foster Kane and the vilified by the press Jefferson Smith, to the meticulously researched and explosive collective efforts of the Boston Globe Spotlight team. There were a huge number of films that featured either journalism or journalists that we could have selected for this episode, and some we reluctantly had to leave out, including films we highly recommend, such as the Hitchcock thriller Foreign Correspondent, Federico Fellini's magnificent La Dolce Vita, and Costa Gavras's Z. but we tried to provide a selection that included some highly regarded and popular films, as well as some that we hadn't seen before, including some lesser-known pieces, and tried to cover a range of topics, eras and countries. To that end, in this episode we will explore the story of a journalist whose mild curiosity about a classified ad turns into a crusade to free an innocent man, a young man who decided that making it all up was a better way of doing things than actual work, two political reporters who stumble upon one of the biggest scoops of the 20th century and produce some of the most influential and famous reportage in history, a reserved older writer whose conscience is stirred by the passionate youth around him, a principled television producer fighting against corporate self-interest to get his story broadcast, and a journalist poet who gets caught between two opposing but equally corrupt politicians. So we hope that there'll be something in this lot that you'll find to take your fancy. Unless you don't like journalism, in which case you're SOL. So, let's get straight into things then with a film from the United States from 1948. Now, the theme of this podcast means that we are expending an extended amount of time in the murky waters of Based on a True Story, a cinematic statement that at times I feel ought to carry the same weight and feeling as Here Be Dragons on Ancient Maps. Henry Hathaway's 1948 noirish drama Call Northside 777 is another of these purporting to tell the true tale of a journalist's investigation and campaign to exonerate two men he believes were wrongly imprisoned. The story begins in Prohibition-era Chicago, a pretty damn lawless time, when a police officer is shot and killed in a speakeasy. Two men, Frank Wiecek, played by Richard Conte, and Tom Zaleska, played by George Tyne, are convicted by the eyewitness evidence of the speakeasy's owner, Wanda Skutnik, Betty Gard, and sentenced to life in prison. Eleven years later, Chicago Times reporter P.J. McNeil, James Stewart, is tasked by his editor Brian Kelly, Lee J. Cobb, to look into an intriguing classified ad, 
which offers a $5,000 reward for information relating to the VCheck case, asking anyone with such information to call Northside 777. This leads him to Tilly Vicek, Kasia Orsazewski, Frank Vicek's mother, who he encounters scrubbing floors. She is convinced of her son's innocence and is offered the reward in the hopes of clearing his name. The sceptical McNeil discovers that she has raised the money by scrubbing floors for a decade and saving every penny, nickel and dime that she can. When cautioned by the reporter that she is likely to only attract crazies and money seekers, she is unconcerned and tells them if it's unsuccessful she will scrub for another 10 years and offer $10,000 if necessary if it will help her boy. Moved by Tilly's faith and dedication, but otherwise believing it unworthy of further pursuit, McNeil intends to write up a minor human interest piece and go on with his life. His editor, Kelly, has other plans though and urges him to follow it up. This includes a trip to the state penitentiary to interview Vicek and to talk to Zaleska, meetings with Vicek's ex-wife and trips to newspaper and police archives of the time. During this, the Times publishes the story and Vicek's plight captures the public's imagination. The sceptical McNeil gradually becomes convinced of Vicek and Zaleska's innocence and begins a crusade to clear their name, or at least to get a retrial. This draws the ire of the state, not because of such petty considerations as wrongful imprisonment of course, but because it will reflect badly on the governor. And it was a different party in power then, but they will be blamed, and so on. A reminder that politics has never not been reprehensible. As well as drawing the state's ire, it draws the ire of the Chicago Police Department, who blank McNeil and attempt to stymie his investigation. Rather than, say, making sure they actually did a good job as police. Isn't it funny how the more corrupt, inept or systematically racist a police force is, the more likely it is to be described as the greatest police force in the country, stroke world, stroke universe by its members in a film. Witness the Chicago PD here, the LAPD in the 1940s and 50s, think LA Confidential, and the NYPD in every film ever. After trying several avenues, having Frank Vicek undergo a lie detector test, administered interestingly in the film by Leonard Keeler, the actual inventor of the device who apparently didn't trust any actor to correctly operate the machine, <laughs> a search through the Polish immigrant neighbourhoods of the city to find Vanda Skutnik and get her to refute her testimony, failing that to try to invalidate it and question her character. Um, but McNeil is at a loss, and the paper is being pressured to drop the story. Eventually, McNeil manages to secure an all-or-nothing review of Vichet's case at the state parole board. Partly noir, though both journalist and defendant are really too upright and of good character for that genre. Partly documentarian, Truman Bradley's narration brings to mind newsreel footage. Call Northside 777 is a thoroughly entertaining ride that perhaps only suffers nowadays from being a little familiar in structure and payoff, though was undoubtedly considerably fresher when released in 1948. Unsurprisingly, the film's biggest draw is Jimmy Stewart, notably dispensing with much of his more charming attributes to portray a tough and cynical reporter, but one whose conscience clearly nags at him and who finds a fire lit inside when he becomes convinced of a miscarriage of justice, a fire further fueled by his indignation that those who should be invested in writing this wrong are resolutely uninterested in doing so. Conte paints a sympathetic and compelling character as the man done wrong, particularly when the truth of his divorce is discovered and it is impossible not to be won over by Cassia or Sazevsky as Frank's loving mother Tilly. 
though some of the more minor characters are pretty standard. There are no wrong notes, save perhaps the almost cartoonish boyfriend of van der Skutnik and Lee Jacobs' editor, who spends much of the film seemingly wryly amused. But I suppose he does provide something of a foil to the rather serious protagonist, so maybe that flies. It's a crisply shot piece, with the real Chicago locations looking great, though it undoubtedly becomes most visually interesting when it adopts a look more fitting of a film noir, particularly in the building where McNeil first meets Tilly, and during his search for Van Skutnik in the areas behind the docks. Story-wise it is compelling, as I mentioned earlier, and the only caveats that I have are that the tense finale is undoubtedly less so nowadays as it feels particularly well-worn, and that, based on a true story as it may be, it's one of the earliest examples I can recall of the great Hollywood salvation-by-technology trope, and absolutely the earliest of the magical improvement of image quality. The crucial revelation, whether or not the date on a newspaper seen in a photograph proves police malfeasance, is undermined by the last-minute transition, at the greatest level of magnification, from illegible blurriness to crystal clarity. Every time that I watch this film, I keep imagining Jimmy Stewart yelling, ENHANCE! at the fax machine. (laughs) Further proof that there's nothing new under the sun, especially in Hollywood. But don't let you put that off. I definitely recommend this one. Yeah, so it's difficult to make watching something getting printed out over wire service to be particularly tension-filled as well. Um, And I suppose that bit of the the ending, I didn't quite see how that one photograph of that one date necessarily proved that he was innocent. it, It proved parts of the testimony was false, but it doesn't... It didn't seem like it was a magic bullet. But, um... <laughs> Apparently, the in the real life case, that wasn't. Um, no surprise, just got that the film didn't necessarily follow the real life case. Oh my god! Yes, chocaruni. <laughs> no, it's uh, the real life case. Uh, Van der Skutnik, or the real life analog of Skutnik, her testimony was thrown out because it was eventually proven that she had originally told the police that she was unable to identify right. the two guys. And then that she was largely coerced into yeah. testifying afterwards. Which makes uh, rather more sense, yes. Yes, uh, and this, it certainly, it raises doubt. And I can see why it sets up enough doubt there that something was a bit dodgy. And yeah. certainly due procedure wasn't followed. So at the very least, I can understand it would be grounds for a retrial. And it's not like the magic bullet thing that the film presents it as being. Yeah. Yes. Uh, would you say it's one of the few instances where it's does have a voiceover that doesn't actually hinder the film, as the, as the Drew Tamdale protocol would normally. <laughs> Weirdly, uh, that actually makes two films in this podcast where I'll I'll say that's actually the case. Um, <laughs> maybe not as much in this one, but I think because it's it's only used in a couple of places, but it, it suits this almost almost newsreel like portions of parts of it. Don't know whether the film would necessarily suffer for not having it but i don't think yeah. it suffers for having it certainly <laughs> which is a, a relatively rare thing i think you call it the drew Daniel protocol there but i think we're largely on the same page there in thinking that voiceovers are generally pretty unnecessary most of the time true i, I, I don't really have an awful lot negative to say about uh, cold north side and sims i enjoyed it an awful lot i hadn't seen it until till there um it's theatrical release poster is terrible so it's got that not going for it. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I enjoyed it an awful lot. I mean, I didn't actually make any connection between this and film noir until I started reading the, the Wikipedia entry on it. You mentioned it there. It doesn't. It doesn't seem noirish at all to me. Like you say that there's a couple of scenes where there are some shadows, but that's, <laughs> that seemed to be about the extent of it. Uh, but ah, yes. Uh, but but yeah, the, the the film I enjoyed wholeheartedly. Very interesting uh, narrative to go through, and of course it's James Stewart. What sort of animal wouldn't like James Stewart in a film? Uh, so yeah, I found an awful lot to like in it. Yeah, bobs along quickly enough, doesn't outstate its welcome, keeps the revelations going quite well. Uh, Stewart is say, playing a, a little bit against type, I suppose, and uh, all the more interesting performance from it. And yeah, the, the, the Chicago locations look great. Um, yeah, it's just a it's a nice little story of uh, someone's determination to get to the bottom of something and works out quite well for everyone. So yes, I enjoyed it a lot for a lot. It's nice to mean obviously uh, particularly in this podcast, when you see a journalist in film, they're more likely to be the hero, whereas in real life it very often find that you're thinking of a journalist as a rather sleazy, unpleasant person, but yeah. Uh, he is a compelling hero in this and it's like using his journalistic skills and actual research to to find out the truth of a thing. Yeah. I always find that a very satisfying style of film. Yeah, there's a very real dif- uh, distance between this and Nightcrawler or something like that. <laughs> yes. Nightcrawler, excellent film, but yes, very, very different style of um, <laughs> journalism. I'm not really sure you could call Nightcrawler journalism. <laughs> no. Um, I'm pretty sure it's called crime. But <laughs> Okay then, so we're going to go to what is undoubtedly the most well-known film we're going to cover tonight, and which also happens to cover one of the most well-known crimes of the 20th century. Mr. Morris, would you like to tell us about All the President's Men? Yes, All the President's Men. Uh, of all the films we're going to cover today, this was the one I looked forward to most as I've somehow contrived not to see it so far. And it's supposed to, uh, supposed to be, of course, an exemplar of the genre. In the unlikely event you've not heard of it, uh, Alan J. Pakula's 1976 film sees Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford take up the mantle of Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward as the Washington Post reporters responsible for every news story these days having the word gate suffixed to it. New to the paper, Woodward is assigned to cover the seemingly minor incident of the red-handed capture of some goons at a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate complex, but his interest is piqued by the surprisingly expensive lawyer representing supposedly low-rent clientele and their claims of ties to the CIA. Tugging on the strings of this seems to connect increasingly higher profile members of the Republican Party machine with the more experienced Bernstein uh, also getting assigned to the growing story. They gain the help of high-placed anonymous source codenamed Deep Throat, played by Hal Holbrook, which very much gave me X-Files flashbacks, but the reliance on such mysterious sources spooks the Post's senior editors, who want more legitimate sources on record. And this, as much as following the story, taxes the duo's determination and ingenuity. Uh, there's little value in recounting all the uncovered cover-ups that eventually led to Nixon resigning in disgrace, and indeed the film sensibly breaks off its pursuit and cuts to the chase itself, presumably having felt that it had fulfilled its remit of showing the procedural side of things and the character of those reporting on it. Now, I don't think I have a great deal negative to say about the film. Hoffman and Redford aren't my favourite actors, but there's little to complain about with their performances. It moves along quickly enough, given the era it's from, and it's a solid look at the technicalities of reliably investigating and reporting an unarguably important story. 
undeniably an important lesson in this time of erroneous tweets immediately becoming headline news. Yet, I don't know, all the President's Men just didn't click with me. Which is not to say I disliked it, really, but it just didn't make any lasting impact on me, which I can't rightly explain, as I enjoyed the very similar approach that Spotlight took, which clearly owes a massive debt to this film, but Mm -hmm. all the President's Men just couldn't hold my attention. Uh, Perhaps I should have been watching the animated adaptation, All the President's Hens. (laughs) As a side note, Pacula should be commended for his dedication to Office Space Veracity, making replicas of old phone books and purchasing the exact same desks and the exact same shade of paint that Washington office had at the time, at a fairly reasonable expense for his backlog set, although one does have to ask the question, who on earth cares about that? That's like method set dressing, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, absolutely insane. Um, Again, there is no obvious reason for me not to recommend this film, although, to be honest, I didn't really enjoy it, but I I think I may have to mark up as mental distress from the tail end of my uh, illness. It was was not in the best frame of mind for watching it, but uh, yes, I... One of those cases that comes up now and again where it's like, I, I, I see nothing wrong with this film except it just kind of bounced off me. So I will give it another look in when I'm uh, feeling a bit more receptive to its wiles and uh, see where it goes. Because yes, as I say, I don't really have any negatives to, against it. This is a film that I also had managed to avoid seeing. Not willfully, more that I've been aware of the film for so long and yeah, when you kind of pretty know... solid understanding of what happened in it that I almost felt like yeah. I didn't need to watch it. Yeah, when you know what's going to happen, into it, it doesn't seem like it's um, really going to be necessary to view it, yeah. And I really did enjoy it. Uh, likewise, I I don't find Robert Redford or Dustin Hoffman particularly engaging in most things. Mm-hmm. There are exceptions, but they're certainly the far from my favourite actors, and so maybe that's a, a bit of a problem. But yeah, I still very much enjoyed it, and I thoroughly enjoy the genuine investigation that it shows and that it's yeah. to do with hard work and dedication and things like that and not just magic luck. Yeah. Or into that. And it's a film I've mentioned a few times, I think, on Fuzz and Film, but it's one of the reasons I so very much like things like The Day of the Jackal mm. when Michael Lonsdale's investigation is about, you know, just donkey work a lot of the time and doing the hard work and investigation and not relying on some miraculous piece of evidence at the end or some eureka moment that the main character has a couple of minutes before the end of the film Mm. and i really find that sort of approach and that sort of story very very satisfying so i very much enjoyed all the president's men for that i just don't quite see what the big deal is about it though it's a it's an absolutely solid film. I did enjoy it, and I would certainly recommend it. But it's as it's been sort of held up as the great journalism films. It's so often as that's my impression of it. Anyway, it's like mm. really, it's it's a good film, but it's it's not the greatest of films. <laughs> and I actually liked it a lot more five minutes before the end than I did right at the end. Because I was really enjoying the actual, the hard work they were doing and they were trying to, to catch the people out. Mm. And then I and I learned from this, assuming that it's accurate, I never really realised before that the whole Watergate thing, it took a long time before anybody paid any real attention to that. It was a, a very yeah. minor story um, at best for a long time. And then they do all that work and they start catching stuff and then they just decide to stop before the really interesting thing of catching the United States president in a lie. Yeah. It's like that that was I find that tremendously frustrating. 
It's like, <laughs> I'm just going to stop now and we're just going to we'll finish the investigation with a couple of lines of text at the end of the film. And I was yes. screaming at that point. Like, <laughs> no, no, you can't do that. You can't just um, do all this hard work and then leave the bit where they catch the president, the main guy, the top guy, where it leads to his downfall by, <laughs> yes, and later next to him is impeached. No, <laughs> I want to see how that led to that. That's the most interesting part. So if you're going to have the investigation, maybe show a bit at the beginning, then skip over the middle and get to the end because the end's the juicy part. Yeah. yeah. I, to be honest, that bit, that infuriated me. Uh, otherwise, yeah, very good film. I just don't quite see what the fuss is about. Well, it's, it's good to know that I'm not uh, entirely mental for thinking for <laughs> the same. Uh, yeah, it, it is a, a strange ending, isn't it? It's very much... Uh, it's, not even, it's, it's not even skipping to the end. It's giving the end in an epilogue, which is a bit disappointing. Um, yeah. 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 It's a strange choice strange choice still worth watching but i wouldn't put it make it high priority or anything yeah it's, it does not live up to its reputation okay let's move on i think that it would be fair to say that back in 2003 no one including myself and scott who i believe i saw this with would have been tremendously enthusiastic or optimistic about seeing a film starring hayden christensen who to most of the world at that point was best known as that guy largely failing to do a passable impression of a comatose tree in Star Wars Episode 2 The Attack of the Clowns. Though, to be fair, he did a pretty decent attempt to irritating, petulant, whiny brat trapped in the body of a tree, assuming that that was how George Lucas wrote that character. I can't fit the appropriate number of quotation marks around the word wrote um, or in anything to do with George Lucas or would be here all day. But in his defence, most of the actors involved in that farcically bad effects showcase were so wooden that I'm surprised that the wikis weren't constructing their dwellings around them. Still, it did make Christensen as a young journalist and writer-director Billy Ray's Shattered Glass a difficult sell, as the film very much had to excuse Star Wars rather than cash in on it. Fortunately, it was a stumbling block worth overcoming. Ole Anakin plays Stephen Glass, a hotshot writer for New York City-based political magazine The New Republic which had a vibrant staff of writers, mostly in their mid to early 20s. Oh, and as a quick aside, the film does begin with an information card saying that the median age of the... Uh, or is it the mean age? Certainly some type of average. The average age of the writers in the New Republic at the time was 26, which they had to add because test audiences didn't believe that the staff could possibly be so young. <laughs> Glass is painted as the shining star amongst them. Kind helpful, willing to help others while writing his own entertaining, colourful stories. Though loved and even revered by most of his colleagues, he seems to get under the skin of Peter Sarsgaard's Chuck Lane. When Lane unexpectedly replaces Hank Azaria's Michael Kelly as editor and finds himself required to investigate the veracity of some of Glass's stories, colleagues rally around and all assume that Lane is, and always has been, jealous of Glass's popularity and skill. It's a not unreasonable assumption. Lane isn't particularly popular in the office and certainly doesn't receive the love and adoration that his predecessor did, an editor who was seen as being protective and fatherly towards his staff. His pieces, while no doubt well-researched, don't seem to have the zing and personality of Glassy's work. But the problem is, it's not sour grapes. Turns out, Glass is a bullshit artist extraordinaire. The problems begin under Kelly's editorship, when the chairman of the American Conservative Union questions the veracity of Glass's story on the drunken antics of attendees at a Young Republicans convention. 
When Kelly confronts him, we can almost see the wheels frantically turning behind Stephen's eyes as he tries to explain away the lie he's just been caught in. He concocts another lie, and cops to a singular error, which is enough to mollify Kelly and have him back Glassy's article. Soon after Chuck Lane takes over though, Adam Penberg, Steve Zahn, a reporter for the then-fledgling website Forbes Digital Tool, begins investigating Glassy's vivid tale of a Californian tech company hiring a 15-year-old hacker as if it was more efficient than fighting him. Penenberg contacts the New Republic when he is unable to corroborate any of the details, and Lane begins to conduct his own investigation. Quickly, Glassy's story, and Glass himself, begins to unravel, and it is discovered that Glass concocted the story from whole cloth. So false is it that one of the only pieces of fact in the article is that there is a state in Union named California, though even that may cause doubt after so many other lies. Glass is fired, and all of his other stories for the magazine investigated. Of 41 pieces published, 27 of them were wholly or partly fabricated. The magazine arranges to publish corrections and apologies before Glass's breathtaking and audacious mendacity brings the whole publication tumbling down. It's a really quite compelling story, and it's particularly fascinating to watch the wheels turn as Glass is forced to create lie after lie to cover all of the untruths that have been discovered, and see his increasingly desperate attempts not to be found out, including faking the website of a tech firm on, of all places, an AOL member page. It bombs along, and tells its fairly dense tale efficiently and effectively in a brisk 94 minutes. It does suffer from an unnecessary framing device, Glass visiting his old school and giving a possibly imagined talk to the pupils there, which adds nothing of value. Though, in a genuine verity, and this is what I alluded to earlier, there are moments of Glass's voiceover that actually add to the telling, notably his description of the rigorous fact-checking that the New Republic articles went through, and how that can be circumvented. Something no doubt made easier when you're ahead of fact-checking, as Glass was at the time. Perhaps the most notable thing about Shattered Glass outside of the spectacular amount of lying, is just how not only not bad Hayden Christensen is, but how good he actually is. While he's clearly out of his element, not in a kid who's just wandered into the middle of a movie kind of way, but in that he's constantly bumping up against the limit of his ability when all around him take their roles in their stride, Christensen is a superb example of the difference that a director that actually cares about acting coupled with dialogue that an actual human might speak, can make to an actor's performance. It would be very easy to paint Stephen Glass as contemptible lying bastard, but here Christensen portrays the young writer surprisingly sympathetically, with the overriding sense being that Glass was foolish, eager to please, and seeking of approval and attention, rather than simply being deceitful and mendacious in order to further his career. Though the film does suggest that lying is a habit that he finds particularly hard to break. It doesn't excuse him, and only Glass and his colleagues know how close to the truth it is, but it's rather more interesting than making him a straight-up villain. There's strong support from Azaria as the mentor figure, and Steve Zahn as the the just-the-right-side-of-scoffingly-cynical rival reporter, but it's Sarsgaard anchors the film, and he does a fine job in his role as the editor, who wants to support and believe his employee, but whose ethical and journalistic standards will not allow him to do so unquestioningly. Alas, the women most prominently Chloe Sevigny and Rosario Dawson, fare less well, and as usual it's the too old story of lack of material, not inadequate performance. Far from perfect perhaps, Shattered Glass is a thoroughly entertaining drama, 
and a sadly necessary reminder to modern media not to be so credulous, mm. especially when too many report or repeat stories published on just one website. If a respected publication with a dedicated fact-checking process and a department can be so thoroughly duped, those lazy, gullible, feckless morons that we have nowadays have to do a lot better and go an awful lot further in their attribution than was on Twitter. <laughs> Sadly relevant. Yeah, um, this was the first I had thought about it really since uh, 2003, I guess, mm-hmm. when we watched it in the first instance. Um, and I, I liked it then and I like it now. Echo a lot of what you're saying to the point that I won't uh, go into it too much, but yes, uh, Christensen does much better than you would expect, <laughs> given what he had been done, what he'd been best known for before then. Um, yes, he's he's perfectly adequate in this role. Um, he actually does quite a good performance. You, you kind of get that, you say, that kind of just searching for approval, for acceptance mm-hmm. to, to try and get that. It comes yes. across quite well, and the, he does manage to get that across the, uh, the kind of slightly panicked, oh, uh, let's start cascading lies at this point uh, thing when he's questioned uh, that comes across quite well um, and it does uh, a pretty convincing job of that and I very much like uh, Skarsgård in this as well, he's kind of quietly one of my favourite actors, he never seems to get like huge roles in a lot of things but anytime he's deployed into something he's in- invariably very effective in it. Yeah, uh, even so- when you don't see him on screen like voicing the robot and Robot and Frank. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Yes, this this is quite an entertaining story. Uh, it's good to see the um, well the, the polar opposite of what happened in all the president's men. Uh, this is uh, how how you can get away with basically making all this up just by uh, a quirk of the fact checking process. And it's it's kind of never explained. And I'm sometimes wishing to kind of go into that is how much was he aware of that in earlier in his career? Like, did he sort of gradually discover this, or was it just something that kind of came all at once? And he's like, that. You could just essentially start making things up. It's a bit easier than actually going out to find the real story. Yeah, it may be interesting to have seen, like, maybe there was the one point where he crossed over the line. Mm-hmm. That at one point he was maybe desperate for a deadline and he was under pressure and he was very, very young and, and oh, I can't quite finish the story, I'll make it up. And, and then found himself gradually crossing that line to the point mm-hmm. the line disappeared or something, perhaps. I don't know. What also occurred to me, and um, I don't know, I've not actually read anything he's done. I know he did write the book after this, but... Clearly, he's someone who wants to tell stories. So you, you kind of wonder why he went into the journalism aspect of things rather than just becoming a novelist in the first instance. Maybe he's hmm. better lucrative. Uh, and it's never really addressed at any point. as like, was that a driving factor in what he was doing? Was this ever something that he was wanting to be into as a, a younger uh, person? Did he come to journalism as a, by, as a kind of backdoor entry kind of thing? Or, you know, these kind of things. Are, there's a few questions about his character that I think would have been nice to get to mm-hmm. the bottom of. I guess Glass himself was not particularly keen on divulging it. Uh, puzzling to think that he's now going on to try and become a lawyer uh, with this sort of reputation behind him. Uh, Fortunately, though, he hasn't. Uh, it was the film... The bar was, yeah. was when, well, obviously not. <laughs> yes. Uh, the film ends with a, uh, a card saying that he had gone to Georgetown Law School and got a, a law degree, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's now working as a paralegal because, yes, he... In two different states, he was not allowed to pass the bar to join the bar because of ethical concerns. So yeah. it's nice to know some um, legal boards somewhere have ethical <laughs> standards. Yeah. Good to see Steve Zahn again. Uh, he's someone who seems to have very much kind of gone off the radar recently. 
Yeah, uh, and, and something you normally associate with more comic roles. But he actually yeah. does a, a pretty good job in this. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, fairly minor role, but yeah, it's a bit of a sausage fest. Could have done with some more than two lines uh, for the, the female characters would have been nice. The the rest of this, I, I enjoyed an awful lot. Yeah, as I say, nice little story. Uh, it's well told, quite well contained. It doesn't go to places that it doesn't need to, I guess, in a lot of, a lot of respects. It's very efficiently told. And yes, I heartily enjoyed it. Uh, well worth giving a look at. Um, not the wasn't a huge success at the time, so it's possibly gone under a lot of people's radar. So yeah, if you, if that's the case, uh, seek this one out and give it a go, and you shall be rewarded. With yes, a, and really, don't let his performance in Star Wars films put you off. Yes, that is um, kind of be unfair in him actually. He's stretched to his limits in this, but because he's actually getting a chance to act as opposed to being a clothes horse, basically <laughs> to an angry clothes horse with a big shiny thing in his hand um, in the Star Wars films. Ooh. Ooh. And moving on. <laughs> right then, Scott. The tobacco industry. They've never done anything bad worth investigating, right? Not a thing. Uh, upright, upstanding citizens, all of them. Yes, so we are, of course, talking about The Insider, which was a Michael Mann film. Uh, Michael Mann not being the type to rush into production, so... There was a four-year gap between 1999's The Insider and the off-loaded heat discussed in podcast Passum. The Insider carries over Al Pacino in the lead role, playing Lowell Bergman, a producer for respected American investigative journalism TV show 60 Minutes. His interest is piqued when a box of documents is delivered to him, alleging that tobacco companies were secretly coming up with ways of making their death sticks more addictive, while swearing blind that they knew nothing of any such activities or that nicotine was addictive, or what a nicotine was, or that the grass was green, or that the Pope defecates in the woods. The documentation comes from the recently fired head researcher Geoffrey Wigand, played by Russell Crowe, everyone's favourite Antipodean phone tosser. He refused to go along with a plan to put another dangerous additive into the company's cigarettes, and was fired under the barely defensible reason of poor communication skills as a result. The film is, then, a two-and-a-half-hour chronicle of Wigan struggling to balance his desire to expose these practices and the extraordinary extents that his former company go to keep him silent. This ranges from mildly threatening meetings reminding him of his confidentiality agreement to alleged death threats and finally commissioning a report smearing his name as it comes closer to the 60-minute piece's air date. Meanwhile, Bergman is fighting his own battle to get the piece on the air, with the corporate lawyers... Uh, expressing grave concerns about the possible liabilities that this could open up for them, unwanted at the best of times, but in particular ahead of a takeover bid. And it's not like Big Tobacco doesn't have lawyers with hair triggers. Both these struggles result in trials, tribulations and personal costs for both men, although Wigan clearly grasps a significantly more turd-covered stick than Bergman. Uh, There's perhaps a danger of the insider being passed over, as evidenced by the disappointing returns at the box office, because what you'd be forgiven for taking as the central conceit of the film, Big Tobacco being big arseholes, isn't really news to anyone. But that's a mistake, as this could be about any subject, uh, even as disgusting as this one is, but it's more about the dilemmas involved when doing the right thing is going to come at a terrible cost. The film lives and dies by its central performances, and that of Crow in particular, who delivers perhaps his best turn to date. It's pretty high up my list of Pacino performances too, and meanwhile a supporting cast running the gamut from Michael Gambon and Rip Torn to Christopher Plummer means that even some very minor roles get major performances. 
The narrative is solid enough, but this is a character piece at heart, and Crow does a terrific job of wringing the emotion from the role. If this isn't Michael Mann's best film, it's certainly challenging for it, packed with much more tension than you'd expect from the subject matter, with some meaty ethical conundrums to conunder, all doused in Mann's slickness. Blech. I can't really come up with much in the way of criticism for it. I feel perhaps it ought to be half an hour shorter, but I can't point to anything that I'd actually want to cut out. Maybe if you're not interested in the story, it may seem a tad dry. Maybe you've gone off Russell Crowe thanks to his extracurricular activities, although not to minimise his occasional anger issues, he's hardly Harvey Weinstein. Uh, But in general, I can't come up with any reasons not to recommend this film to everyone in the event that you have not seen it. It's interesting you mentioned that you think maybe it's the the best Michael Mann film, and I'm thinking, I probably am in agreement. I mean, I like Heat, but it's certainly nothing as much as Francis Craig likes Heat, uh, although more than you do, clearly. People keep scoffing me for saying that I like Collateral a lot, which I don't understand, I like Collateral a lot, but <laughs> Manhunter's good. I remember so little of Last of the Mohicans that possibly that's better, but I can't remember, really can't remember it. But mm. of the other Michael Mann films I can think of, I suspect The Insider probably is my favourite film of his. And certainly a great deal of that is to do with the excellent central performances he's brought out. Yeah. You mentioned this, the supporting cast who are great. Christopher Plummer in particular is, I always forget which one is he is, Dan Rather or the other guy, Mike Wallace, isn't he? Mike Wallace mm. from 60 Minutes. Yeah, he's fantastic, but it's Pacino and Crow. The only slight reservation I have with Crow is that at times I was, I don't know, I think maybe it's a personality thing rather than his performance that I wasn't necessarily buying him on occasion as this great scientist. Yeah, That's pretty minor, it's only fleeting though. And Al Pacino, who in this is, is some sort of weirdly restrained point three of a Scarface. <laughs> which is possibly the only other time I've seen Pacino quite so restrained, I think, is Insomnia. Yeah. But, yeah, Pacino's great as this this fantastically principled and passionate central character who, who's just, who really does care about his sources, who is incredibly strongly principled, who is moral and crusading and just a fascinating character, but he's not like exactly some sort of untouchable bashing of virtue or anything he feels like a real person he's kind of warm and cares about the people who are risking their own careers or in some cases lives to help him put this story in the air which is as much as we'd like to think definitely a lot of these journalistic television programs are there as entertainment yeah and yeah so him and crow together fantastic superb performances from everybody else a lot of Michael Mann's films are actually quite long, but of them, I think this is possibly the one I would least want to take anything out of. Mm. For me, I, I think it's just a nice lens because the story grips me every time. And I don't really have anything negative to say about it. Certainly there are people in it I don't like, but they're, they're meant to be unlikable. Yeah, Gina um, Gerson and Stephen Tobolowsky in particular is kind of somewhat odious corporate lackeys for want of a better term Um, yeah it's all about it's thoroughly entertaining film yes indeed the insider is a good one watch it yes uh, another arguable box office failure doesn't certainly didn't pull the numbers i guess the the bean counters were expecting although it's hardly a 
an obscure film by anyone's stretch of imagination. But yes, if you've not seen it, uh, again, definitely stick this one on your list. I was going to mention this at the end. I mean, I normally don't do recommendations so much. We just tend to talk about in terms of like separate to the films we've actually covered on the podcast. But I have already made a couple at the start of the episode and just I found that there were so many films that I wanted to talk about this podcast and couldn't fit them all in. Hmm. One I really wanted to mention, I think, I was going to leave at the end. I think now's the appropriate time because it covers television and it's the same network at CBS who for a long time, and I have no idea whether it's still the case now, but television journalism basically doesn't seem to exist anymore, so I suspect not. But CBS had such a fantastic reputation for journalistic integrity for a long long time and if you have any interest in that at all and you haven't already seen it watch good night and good luck mm-hmm. which yes. features an, an earlier cbs anchor called edward r murrow we know we've covered it before in our modern day black and white podcast but i just think it's a fantastic film and i would urge you to watch that in addition to the insider seem to work together quite well reiterated so we're going to take a step back in time now and across the atlantic Sostieni Pereira, variously known in English as According to Pereira, Pereira Maintains and Pereira Declares, from the Italian original, sees Marcello Mastroianni as Pereira, a writer for independent Lisbon newspaper Lisboa, simply Lisbon in English, during the time of the fascist Estado Novo dictatorship in Portugal and the civil war in neighbouring Spain. While once a news reporter, the widowed and solitary Pereira now writes and edits the newspaper's culture section and seems content to live in the past, sheltered from the political turmoil that surrounds him on the Iberian Peninsula and in Europe as a whole. Instead, he makes considerable effort to contribute to his poor health, with quality cigars and pancreas-assaulting, tooth-dissolving quantities of sugar added to his lemonade. <laughs> See, there's so much lemonade I think I've got diabetes just by watching this. <laughs> All the while, while chatting to his dead wife's photograph. His priorities change, however, when he hires a passionate and political young man to help him prepare obituaries of literary figures. This man, Montero, Stefano Dionisi, professes at first to be apolitical and not actually interested in obituaries, instead more interested in life than in death. Still, Pereira offers Montero the job, but much to his chagrin, his obituaries are politically loaded. Pereira learns that the impetus behind this actually comes from Montero's girlfriend Marta, Nicoleta Braschi, and further learns that the couple are involved in the anti-fascist struggle in Portugal, and also in recruitment of fighters for the Republican army over the border in Spain. Being involved with this fiery and determined couple, who are willing to put their own lives at risk to oppose fascism, creates a new spark of life in Pereira and encourages him, even in a small way, to join the fight and use his position as a journalist to do some good, and open the eyes of the public to what is happening. Mastroianni spent a large chunk of time towards the end of his career trying to throw off his reputation as a screen playboy and heartthrob, epithets he'd never cared for personally, and created several fantastic portraits of older men in his final years. One such is Pereira, and he's a delight as the quirky, detached from the here and now, but smart still, newspaperman, who... Far from being described as any sort of Latin lover, could best be described as avuncular. In reality, the story is fairly slight, and Pereira himself plays only a small part in the political strife that is going on in the background, but it's a charming story with a glint of sharp steel under the surface, and his journey from detachment to heart of the action is rewarding, 
and, perhaps because he begins so far away from politics, quite shocking, particularly when he experiences firsthand the cost of defying the authorities. Mastroianni is given fine support by Dionysi and Baraski as the idealistic young couple, as well as Lisbon native Joaquim de Almeida as the local waiter who feeds Pereira much of his local news. French actor Daniel Odoia as the idiosyncratic doctor who is happy for Pereira to postpone his diet as long as he can share one of his fine cigars, and Swiss Marta Keller as the Jewish woman who encourages Pereira to use his position as a journalist to make a difference. This is set in Portugal, but it's an Italian film, and I mention the various nationalities to highlight their skill at acting in Italian, and to create an opportunity to carp about the piss-poor quality of foreign language education in this country, especially when we were at school. And yes, I know that this has sod all to do with Sostieni Pereira, but when has that ever stopped me before? <laughs> and it's probably something which warrants some good journalistic think pieces. So there you go, there's your incredibly tenuous connection to today's theme. <laughs> Visually, it's not particularly exciting, but it does have a very particular look. Despite being filmed largely on location in and around Lisbon, its sets and colour process give it a very warm palette that actually makes much of it feel very soundstagey, but on the flip side it does fit and evoke its 1930s setting. I didn't really bring my notes to a satisfactory conclusion at the end there. That's your lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, another um, unexpected little gem in this. Uh, I enjoyed this wholeheartedly. It's uh, probably something I, I don't think I'd ever go back to again. I don't think I'm going to get anything more out of this on repeat viewing. Uh, but it's, no, that's, that's so, fair. it's a solid, solid little story and it's amazingly charming. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, uh, Pierre himself, Marcel Mastoriani. If, if there was anyone... Well, if that role hadn't been cast properly, uh, the film would be unwatchable. Yeah, uh, it, but, it hinges so much on that character being played just right. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's absolutely nailed. So that's a good thing. Uh, it's an incredibly charming uh, character to sort of hinge a relatively slight, as you say, narrative around, but it works. Some of his support's good, some of it's not. I didn't think Stefano Dionysi's did particularly well as the, the, the kid. He seemed a bit flighty. I'm not entirely sure about his character, but... Uh, it didn't really distract from the enjoyment of the piece itself, so uh, such is life. Uh, looks really nice. I like the way it looks. Um, I like the the setting and such. Like it just again a bit of a, bit of a break from the norm. Well, sorry, I was going in regards to the setting too. I said it did sound film kind of sound stage, but it did it did just feel right for like warm Mediterranean evening in the nineteen thirties. Yeah, yeah, it just it really really evoked that era. I thought yes. And uh, yeah, very enjoyable. Touches on some you know darker social themes that were going on at the time without ever really making it the focus of it. Um, it is more about the journalists than the events that are going on, and it's no none the worse for it. Yes, so uh, terrifically enjoyable one. I, I now wish I'd paid a little bit more attention to the music because I'm seeing it's an Ennio Morricone score. Ennio Morricone, yes, um, um, always a good thing. Yes, uh, but I've got to say it didn't really stick in my mind as being memorable one way or the other, but that's maybe one thing I might go listen to again, but even minor Morricone is better than most other scores, so uh, yes, another reason to stick it on your list, and uh, yes, it definitely deserves to be there. Give this one a go too. Also, yeah, I just mentioned too that I've been to Lisbon, I know that it's nowhere near the Mediterranean, it's on the Atlantic. I'm just talking about Mediterranean lifestyles and settings which you think of when you think of Iberia, okay? 
Or anybody writes in to correct me and say that. There's no one near the Mediterranean. Yeah, nerds. This is a film I had never heard of before. Uh, Likewise, yeah. There's some of these films are a case of just looking at large lists of recommended films about journalism, journalism or journalists. Uh, and this one kind of stuck out to me. Largely because I was looking for something not in the English language to begin with. Mm. And the the idea of the story appealed to me and the idea of the setting and seeing because we'd skipped over La Dolce Vita with the same actor but seeing Mastroianni as the older character sounded actually quite intriguing mm-hmm. and I'm really rather pleased that of all the films we could have picked to pick this one as you say not a not a massive amount of rewatch value I suspect but definitely it's worth watching the once it's a really interesting Absolutely. film yes so though, um, we come to the final film of the podcast, which I refused to do the introduction for because I have no idea what was going on in it. <laughs> um, so Scott's going to tell me there, aren't you, Scott? Yes, the film we are talking about is uh, variously known, but uh, Entranced Earth is the one what I've got. Uh, if I recall correctly, it made the list off the back of something like the IMDb summary, which runs roughly thus. Uh, in the hypothetical Latin American, Latin American country of El Dorado, poet and journalist Paolo Martins fights against the populist governor Felipe Vieira, sorry, Felipe Vieira and the conservative president Porfiro Diaz, which, to be fair, if you're going to try to boil down Terra in Trance, Brazilian writer-director Glauber Roca's 1967 film down to a paragraph, is about as close as you're going to get. Uh, but it does rather sell short the outright weirdness of the film, though. <laughs> And I'm rather sure that's why this film's Wikipedia page, so often the home of the needlessly detailed recap, doesn't even bother in this instance. <laughs> it's like, this is a film that exists and this is its name. Bye now. Yes. Um, it would probably be foolish of me to even attempt to recap the plot, but no one's ever accused me of good sense. Um, to be honest, though, it's tough to add a great deal more about it. Uh, Yardel Filo's Paolo Martins is a poet first and journalist a very distant second. Uh, if I'm reading it rightly, it's framed non-linearly with him reminiscing, sort of, with his girlfriend Sarah, Glousey Rocca, while driving away very quickly from the hot mess El Dorado has found itself in, assault rifle in hand, lamenting his part in the hot messification, along with pretty much everything else in his life. Uh, we flash back to Paolo's more idealistic days as he convinced Jose Lugois Felipe Vieira to run for governor's office on what appears to be a left-wing socialist ticket railing against the elite, but this soon descends into populism, with Vieira making a string of promises he couldn't hope to meet to the adulation of the masses who desperately want to believe him. We also see his relationship with hardcore capitalist rich boy President Porfiro Diaz, who stands for all the things you'd expect, and worries that the external business investment will drop off after Vieira's election, and plots to overthrow him by arms if necessary, although budget constraints rather limits the opportunity for on-screen civil war. Paolo is, in truth, little more than an observer in these events, and aside from decrying them, he has little role in attempting to stop them. And what events they are, as before long both sides are pushed out to ludicrous extents, with Vieira almost assumed by a wave of the worst sort of mob rule, and Diaz playing out some sort of Wolf of Wall Street style playboy excesses, before ending up giving what's possibly some sort of party political broadcast as a frothing, ranting fascist. I'm perhaps underplaying the oddity of the film. Uh, (laughs) You're definitely underplaying the oddity of the film, Scott. You haven't once mentioned the ermine cloak and the massive crown or um, 
the messianic Christ-like scene. <laughs> yeah. What with Paolo being a poet and all, outbreaks of poetry presented as dialogue are, dialogue are frequent and, well, melodramatic isn't the right <laughs> term, but it's as close as one I can come to. Um, in that regard, it's rather like a musical without the backing track. It's a wildly baffling piece to watch when entering blind, and while I can't say I enjoyed it in any traditional sense, it is fascinating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, that's true. It's, it's not conventionally bad, at the very least. Having done a little digging, I can at least make some sense of the context. Uh, Rocket was a leading force behind Brazil's Cinema Novo, a movement very much in response to the French New Wave, and Rocket indeed things. the closest examples I can think of to liken this to would be some sort of cross between this year's Neruda and last year at Marienbad. Yeah, it's clearly very, very influenced by the French New Wave. I thought that all the way through it, it really felt yeah. like it owed a debt to that. Uh, Roca seemed to have a rather expansive and hopeful view of the influence that cinema could wield way over and above simply highlighting injustices. It seems, along with his involvement in political causes, they thought to shepherd a cultural revolution. Uh, this rather hit the skids when Democratic President Joe Goulart was turfed out of office in a military coup with noted asshole Costello Branco assuming the dictatorship, bankrolled by the IMF and American multinationals. Not unlike the stated aims of Diaz for El Dorado, not at all coincidentally enough. <laughs> Clearly, writer-director Roca was affected by this and Paolo Martin's rage at, well, everyone, but particularly the politicians he feels betrayed by or disappointed in, must certainly be a bit of author insertion. So, with this in mind, it's possible to parse the film a little better, although ultimately I'm not sure it's more than a raging against the dying of the light, and Paolo's bellicose denunciations of everyone that isn't him can go <laughs> a touch tiring by the end of the piece. It's a howl of anguish more than it is a film, although it's all the more interesting for it. Now, we're not the kind of podcast that throws around the term Brechtian, but if we were, we'd be throwing it around right now. The editing, the deliberate desyncing of the sound, the pacing, the one hopes deliberate overacting... Some of the framing, certainly the refusal to establish any shot, makes the film a dizzying mess, and as protagonists go, Paolo seems custom-built to repel empathy. It has taken the arthouse style and turned it to all the arthouse, which <laughs> would often have me running screaming, but Terra and Trance is just too peculiar a film to hate. At the risk of repeating myself, I can't hand on heart say that I enjoyed Terra and Trance, but it and the political and cultural milieu around it are absolutely fascinating and well worth reading about. Viewed in a vacuum, it's hard to take it seriously and hard to breathe, so don't view it in a vacuum. Or a Hoover, for that matter, although that's more of a hygiene concern. But looked at as part of the wider goings-on in Brazil at the time, it's a very interesting, inventive and outre mood piece, and a curiosity that's worth indulging. But yeah, it's mental. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is mental. If you, by the time this comes out, maybe a couple of weeks ago, well, a week, if you look back in our Twitter feed, you'll see a, a gif I've posted of one of the characters in the in this film that is largely how I felt after watching this film. Yeah. <laughs> Decidedly manic, slightly unhinged, not entirely sure what was going on. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, politically, um, it's interesting for the time and you see that the Brazilian government tried to ban it because it was portraying Brazil in a negative light. All authoritarian regimes, they don't like to have anybody criticising them at all. Hmm. Who does that sound like nowadays? <laughs> hmm. Anyway, uh, it's... I did not like this film. I really, really did not like this film. But I don't regret watching it, I think. Because it's been... You know, there's nothing worse than mediocre. And this is not your conventionally bad film. This is your balls-out super mental film, really. But 
Yeah, so very clearly it was a, a great dip to the French New Wave. So if I think if you like the French New Wave at all, it's definitely worth checking out and seeing how that was influencing other cinema in other parts of the world. Other than that, I absolutely could not recommend it because I think the number of people who will enjoy this film is fairly low. Yeah, it is definitely not a general audience recommendation. <laughs> no, no. This, this would clearly not be suited in your multiplex. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. But it is... Yeah, it's interesting, and I've seen outside of some of the French New Wave films, as we've both mentioned, it's unlike anything I've seen. It's heavy into the imagery, as opposed to narrative or anything. Because scenes, as I mentioned, the scenes of the the right wing character, although really, I suppose in the end, they're both pretty right wing. Um, the two politicians, but the right wing character, the the big industrial man with his lots of money wearing his big crown, but then at some point to try and show he was a, a humble person, person of the people driving through, I think maybe in some, some sort of very humble car, like a Citroen 2CV or something like that, with a crucifix in his hand and wearing black. It's yeah, it's really, really heavy in the imagery. Maybe a bit too heavy at times. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I guess it's trying to go for as much visual poetry as there is poetry in um, Paolo Martin's dialogue. It is distinctive. I will give it that. Um, <laughs> it's about all I'm willing to give it, to be honest. I, I say, I didn't enjoy the film, but I don't regret having seen it. So now I know what this film is like, and I, I can move on with my life. It's certainly it's not something that will ever trouble my thoughts or, or my television screen again, I imagine. But Yeah. <laughs> again, it's difficult to recommend it in terms of being something that people will actually enjoy, I think. <laughs> However, if you are the kind of person that does listen to film podcasts, you clearly got some interest in the genre. You're not <laughs> just talking about, uh, you know, just here for news about the latest Marvel films. So, uh, if if you've got that level of investment in it, and you've seen something like uh, maybe Jodorowsky or something like that, and you've you've got a a taste for that kind of thing, then that's probably more the the the, the end of the market that this is skewed towards. Mm, yeah, um, it is a very strange uh, beat poetry. <laughs> section of a film more than it is anything that's uh, <laughs> comprehensible in any, any yeah, real I mean, sense and sort of even in like in terms of editing it's almost like dream logic yeah in yeah. parts it's that sort of kind of fractured jumping from one scene to another and yeah it's i think that a real cinephile is just looking for something quite different might yeah. um be encouraged to check this out mm-hmm. uh yes but a big marvel blockbuster it is not if you want an easy time, this is this is not the one for you. It's not it's not one to stick on when you're hungover in the morning or anything like that. But uh, yeah, if you want something that's a, a bit more challenging, I think you will find this. I can't imagine anyone watching this and not finding it interesting. I can very much imagine them watching it and not enjoying it in the slightest. But they would have to admit that it is never boring. Yes, <laughs> absolutely know. not. It it does not suffer the great crime of mediocrity. Yes, uh, it is. Perhaps though a cautionary tale that just because you see the word you're looking for, in this case a journalist, um, <laughs> in a synopsis of a film, does not mean that the film in fact has anything to do with that word at all, because, well, it doesn't. It really doesn't. And even though there are a number of scenes where you see Paolo in the newspaper office, presumably, and yeah. sitting at a typewriter, I don't think he ever <laughs> actually uses that typewriter. It just seems to be a prop in front of him, and it's... <laughs> Got nothing to do with journalism or newspapers at all. It's like, we only really know he's a journalist because people say it a couple of times. <laughs> yes, yes. Judged purely in terms of it belonging as part of this podcast, it fails massively. 
of course, we couldn't have known that until we watched it. And certainly it was an interesting film to watch. Because there's the danger of um, relying on other uh, people's rather inadequate synopses and plot keywords. Um, <laughs> although, really, I think anybody's ever used plot keywords on IMDb by now should know that to pay those no heed. The plot synopses, yes, right? Because often they're at least give you a fairly accurate idea of what's going on in the film. The plot keywords on IMDb are scattershot at best. Yes. <laughs> so then, Scott, the Twitters. Yes, before we go, if you have bits of feedback on the Twitters, we asked for general thoughts on uh, journalism films, these films that we were covering, and Blake writes at uh, Blake writes on Twitter as, uh, and just to mention that uh, Blake is a host on the I'm the Host podcast, which I recommend heartily. And he says, All the President's Men has an interesting legacy, giving journals enough uh, a sense of purpose in the 70s. Though philosopher Slavoj Zizek argues it's a distraction, he argues movies like All the President's Men become a false catharsis or commiseration over corruption, luring the public away from effecting real change. But then he's also a bit of a troll, so who knows? Um, I thought it was interesting look at how journalists do their job, at least. Uh, yes, I, I I very much agree with that last part. That that's what I like so much about it. Is that almost procedural nature of it, of just seeing people working hard and and using skill and education and things to to do a job and not relying on magic and it's not shortcutting away from what's actually the the centre of their job. Yeah, I very much agree with that. But yes, the earlier section I have uh, no expertise to judge. So <laughs> and next up. We asked a question on Twitter again more recently. Uh, do you favour the investigation, as in the recent Spotlight, or the journalist, as in classics like Cladoshi Vita or Foreign Correspondent? Uh, first off the block to answer that was our good friends at the Magic Lantern podcast, uh, at lantern underscore cast. Uh, always the investigation. Better when the villain or subject of investigation is compelling, at least more so than the investigator. The exception that comes to mind is television, when it's personality-driven, and that's why you come back, Hala. Columbo or Kolchak. But I will echo what I said um, in reply to the, Ma- the Magic Lanterners. As I generally prefer the investigation as well, and they mentioned that the the villain or subject investigation that it's great when they're compelling. And mm-hmm. it's, um, I deliberately didn't pick Spotlight for this film um, because it is so recent, um, and it's more well known, I think, because of its being so recent, being award winning of late. But the villain in that is a corrupt, kiddie-fiddling, protecting, hugely influential, incredibly rich, worldwide organisation that's existed for more than a thousand years. That's a pretty compelling villain. (laughs) So that's what makes something like Spotlight particularly appealing too. Yes, and uh, another answer from Blake writes, I think stories where the journal takes centre stage of the story makes more sense when their personality is the key, i.e. fear and loathing in Las Vegas, Capote, etc. Uh, yes, again, I guess I agree with that. There's a Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is an incredible film that's got really almost nothing to do with journalism, isn't it? It's just uh, the manicness of Hunter S. Thompson and uh, what a, what a great right. film it is. In, in that terms, that film is journalism, journalism is largely what paid for all the drugs. Yes. <laughs> that's where journalism <laughs> comes to that particular film. And also, yes. just asked in general about what films people liked in mean, journalism. And Exploding Helicopter at Chopper Fireball uh, mentioned The Sweet Smelly Success and Ace in the Hole are my two particular favourites. Yes, another fine podcast. 
However, in this instance, two films I've never heard of. <laughs> so I will, I, will, I will stick them on a list and at least plan on trying to watch them, although I suspect it may never make it up the list. <laughs> I'll certainly stick them on their hand and see what they're talking about. So that will wrap us up for today. What a day it's been. We've all had laughs. We've all recommended some good films. We've all been weirded out by, by Entranced Earth. So many, so many great memories I think we've all made and shared today. Um, if you want to talk to us about any of these uh, events, these happenings, then please do so. A uh, number of ways you could do so. You could go old school and put an email together to podcast at fudsonfilm.com or you could be like the modern kids and use the, the Twitters and the Facebooks, whatever those are, uh, at twitter.com or at fudsonfilm or facebook.com slash fudsonfilm and we'll be delighted to talk to you and you will be delighted by her response and guarantee it. Uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll be back in 10 days, but until then, take care of yourself and each other. I'm Scott Morris, and the Drew Tamdale, I'm as reliably insured, is still Drew Tamdale. Hasta la próxima.